This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. I also think it's daunting, like Mark was saying, for teachers to teach listening. And it's also daunting for teachers to think of completely changing the way they do things. There is a place, there can be a place for comprehension questions. There can be um, sort of a middle uh, ground in here. So okay. so going from this completely comprehension-based approach to a more process-oriented approach can go through different stages. And so mm-hmm. teachers can incorporate new practices in their existing practices. And I think that could be a way to go to change the status quo, perhaps. We don't really, as teachers, get involved with the same activities that our students are doing. It's actually some research done by uh, Joseph Siegel and found that actually not many teachers are modelling how to listen. So if we can actually get involved in the listening stage and show how we went about uh, listening to the same thing that our students are doing, then we can give feedback and show the difference between what a successful listener does and what possibly an unsuccessful listener does. Uh, Definition, the comprehension approach. Is it necessarily helpful? I'm just wondering if there couldn't be a more descriptive, perhaps, uh, term or just acknowledging that teachers are doing very different things and that a lot of them are actually very resourceful. They are asking the question that we are asking, how do we improve listening? And a lot of teachers are are scared to follow their intuitions, but I think follow your intuition and some Sometimes you will make mistakes, but I think everybody makes mistakes in the classroom. Um, mm. uh, me more frequently than many, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, if you try things out, you can find things that work for you and your learners. Mm-hmm. And don't be afraid of a bit of learner autonomy outside of the classroom as well with some of the things that are not really requiring a teacher to get done. Teacher Talking Time is created with support from you, our listeners. If you like the show, you like what we do, please subscribe in your favorite app, tell a friend, and leave us a review. Believe us, it goes a long way. If you're interested in contributing to the creation of the show, we also have a tip jar. The link to that, all our social media, and our website is in the show notes. For more resources on today's topic, you can check out our podcast page online, learnyourenglish.net slash podcast. Thanks for listening. And now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. My name is Marek Kiczkowiak, and I'm from Poland. You're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Cześć, nazywam się Marek Kiczkowiak i jestem z Polski. Słuchacie właśnie Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the current state of listening or teaching listening. And the purpose is to talk about what we are doing right now and how we can improve in terms of really teaching listening in the classroom or more recently online. So we're going to be exploring ways of teaching and developing students' listening skills, that is learning to listen rather than just testing their comprehension, which is what we normally do. So today I'm joined by Andrew, who is finally back on the podcast with me, but we also have two other guests here. We have Mark Jones, who has been teaching since 2003 and currently teaches English at universities in Japan. 
He's started in private language schools and has taught in almost every possible context in Japan. He is particularly interested in task-based language teaching, listening and phonology learning, teacher development, teacher beliefs, classroom materials development, and neurodivergency. I'm probably going to ask him questions about that in language teaching and learning. He also holds a Trinity Dip TESO, NMA in Applied Linguistics and TESO from the University of Portsmouth. And he has a website, uh, markjones.tokyo, and he also has a blog, uh, getgreatenglish.com. We're going to be adding these to the show notes. And we also have uh, Chiara Bruzzano. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, Bruzzano. Bruzzano. Mm -hmm. She's a teacher, a researcher at the University of Leeds, currently finishing her PhD, so we should congratulate her on that. And she's also a blogger at the English Teaching professional is that it is that what it stands for and she's also a materials writer welcome everyone thanks to i'm great i'm really happy to be here (laughs) yes thanks so much for inviting us yeah well uh we're gonna start talking a little bit about listening teaching testing and practicing so i was thinking there is a saying that for many people the opposite of speaking isn't listening it's waiting However, for the purposes of our conversation, we shall be considering listening as one of the four essential language skills our students need to acquire. So we all acquired our first languages by listening and this ability to to hear and understand, I would say is fundamental to the ability to communicate and learn in a foreign language as well. So I have a, a, a little preamble here. And I don't know if you guys are going to agree with me, but I think this would be a very good way for us to kick things off. If the students have listened to a text in the classroom, it wasn't necessarily a listening lesson. What do you guys have to say about this? Um, Yeah, definitely. I would agree. Yeah. Um, There's obviously a difference between uh, input and intake. So we already know that. So if you if your purpose was, if your objective was to uh, have them listen so they would learn the language from the listening, then that's not necessarily a given, and that's the first thing. Um, a second point, yes, we'll be talking about the comprehension approach and how that's um, really testing listening rather than teaching listening. So, yeah, it doesn't make it necessarily a listening lesson. But I will also add, um, I, I work with teacher beliefs and teacher cognition, and to a lot of teachers, that would be a listening lesson. Mark? Yeah, I've got to agree with Chiara. Uh, basically, um, when we look at the materials that um, a lot of teachers are using, they're set up in such a way um, that it's really just presenting language points that are expected to be repeated by our learners later on in the lessons. Uh, that's not my research. That's uh, by a believer in strengths. And uh, they... Uh, took a look at uh, several uh, global course books. Now, this is actually uh, something that is reflected in my own research because a lot of the teachers that I talked to or that I had um, completing surveys for me, um, they identified um, the, the ways that they teach listening. It's dictated by the materials that they have. I mean, materials for teaching are some of the main ways that teachers learn and develop their teaching skills and if it's always going to be set out 
that way as the kind of presenting language to be used later, um, then that's all that's really ever going to happen. So unless we see a, a sea change in the lang in, uh, language teaching materials, then we're never going to really have a change in the way that uh, listening is taught. Yeah, that was really interesting because that was a thing that I was going to jump in and say, and you you beat me to it, Mark. So that was that was good. Oh, sorry, because <laughs> um, I think it's important to parse some of these words or these terms that we're going to be using. And Kara, you said intake and and input and intake, right? And Mark, mm -hmm. you're, we're talking about even just simply listening lessons, and our listening lessons, as we're defining them, just a vehicle to get language out to present language, or our listening lessons a way to teach listening skills. That's rhetorical, but I'll throw it out there to the group. Yeah, well, that that's exactly the point, isn't it? Um, in like I was saying in my research, um, I've looked a lot at what teachers do and what teachers believe about what they do, and a lot of what they do, like Mark was saying, is dictated by textbooks and exams. So there's a mm. big washback effect. Um, exams, unless you look at some specific contexts which have some sort of more task-based assessments, but in most cases, you look at exams, they're very brain-based. Um, and obviously, if you add to that, the fact that most teachers aren't really trained in, in teaching listening per se, and I certainly wasn't trained in teaching listening before becoming interested in this, um, then obviously the result will be a big washback effect. Um, and it's, if you look at what teachers say um, and what they believe, really, there's, I think I've identified... Um, three main orientations one being that listening is for something else so which is partially you know true obviously I wouldn't contest that a hundred percent but you use listening as a pretext to do some speaking or vocabulary learning or to to teach a grammar point or whatever um, and other teachers are more for um, listening as task completion so listening to for example practice for an exam uh, to complete the, you know, the comprehension questions or whatever. Uh, and other teachers um, have a little bit of a different approach, which has been called a, a, of an osmosis approach almost, whereby they think listening is just going to develop by itself. Um, and yeah, well, and, and it's, yeah, it's similar to extensive listening in a way. It's got similarities with um, the approach of extensive listening. So having students listen to a lot. Um, at home, authentic sources perhaps align with their interests, uh, which again is not entirely wrong, I wouldn't say, and there's proponents of this approach. Uh, but the mid, I, I think the bottom line here is that none of this really represents teaching listening processes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got to agree um, again. I mean, I got interested in listening because basically I thought at one point in my teaching that I was awesome, and that I could do no wrong in the classroom. <laughs> uh, no, uh, but, 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 but I have a caveat here. So, does, it, does that mean uh, you no longer think that? No, absolutely not. I, <laughs> I am not awesome. Um, um, uh, I, sh I, would, I should get T-shirts made. Um, Monday, one. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But um, what happened was that like, basically you're going through the book and you're doing what employers are asking you to do and you do it well and you do it well enough that students are like, wait, this is, this is great, but it's the illusion of learning. And then basically it, it just happened one day um, that I had um, students just like 
yeah, I I can't understand this thing that you just played. I think it was I brought in some kind of supplementary materials, um, and I was like, oh, this this shouldn't be happening. And then I put that like first seed of doubt in my mind, and then was just like kind of moving on with that. And it's like, yeah, you know what? I don't think I can teach listening. I don't know how to teach listening, and I've never found out how to teach listening anywhere. And so that's one of the things that led to me um, starting my deputy sol and eventually uh, to my master's. Mm. Um, I just want to find out how on earth can we teach listening? And uh, I think I'm getting closer to it. <laughs> I don't think I'm there yet. Uh, there's very two interesting points that both of you have mentioned. One by Chiara, that teachers are not trained in teaching listening completely agree with that but i would say it i don't know how you guys feel about this but i would add that we're not even trained to teach to to listen in our first language because i would argue that a lot of human beings are not very good listeners for example when we are listening we're not able to limit distractions so we're not really fully paying attention a lot of people when they listen they don't ask follow-up questions they just rush before and to make their point so they're not really listening to to understand they're listening to reply. Um, and a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of, like they're not open to changing their mind when they're receiving new information, for example. Um, they don't listen to learn, as I just, as I just said. Um, what do you guys have to say about listening in our first language? Do you find that the reason why teachers are, are bad at teaching listening, apart from the fact that textbooks de-skill teachers in teaching listening, do you think that to a certain extent, it has to do with the fact that we were never really taught how to listen in our first language? Um, that's such an interesting question. I don't, um, I don't know what Mark will think. I don't, um, I don't know if that's really why. I do agree with the points you've made. Um, I think maybe as a non-native teacher as well, I think I can probably make this point. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily to do that to do with the fact that we're not trained to listen in our first language, because that's um, what you've just mentioned now is more to do with um, our reasons for listening and our mm -hmm. objectives, you know, with listening in our first language. Well, in the second language, we have a completely different host of problems when we talk about bottom of decoding mm -hmm. you know understanding the sounds and the syllables well it that's not really something that that really troubles you in your first mm -hmm. language well actually in in your second language it is a very big part um, of what we're now saying should be taught um so that is a pretty big difference and i think the fact that we're not taught to listen in our first language is connected to this idea of the primacy of sound right we learn by listening we learn our first language by listening um which also is like mark was saying you know is it's it's a principle that's adopted in a lot of commercial elt like franchises um i'm not going to name names but in in a lot of these you know methods you're supposed to just be listening to a lot of stuff and repeat and repeat and repeat which fair enough but uh how limited is that um so yeah Oh, I totally agree. I mean, you you can't really um, think about it in a L1 versus L2 kind of way because our first language, like uh, Chiara was saying, you're, you're, you're not really listening to develop that sound awareness. 
um, when I was starting to listen to uh, a lot of Japanese, it was really, I was repeating stuff a lot um, to try and get that sound discrimination in my head that just wasn't there in English. And so it's a, it's a different goal. As in your first language, you're, as a little kid, you're listening to try and get some sense of what the adults around you and the other people around you are saying um, and getting just meaning from that, but you've already got the sounds. Whereas in your second language or third or fourth, you're, you're trying to build up sounds first. You've got the idea of getting the meaning there, but the, the sounds have a bit more of a primacy. Uh, yeah, and I would add to that as well, that to teach, um, we, you know, how to listen for sounds in a second or foreign language, um, even if you are a native uh, teacher, whatever, okay, let's not go into definitions yeah. of native teacher, but I, I did teacher. Up, yes, competent, no, but the point I wanted to make is that uh, I grew up speaking Italian, I never spoke a word of English until I was 11, right? Uh, so mm. Italian is the language I probably have, I don't know, uh, more confidence in, let's put it that way. Um, and so if I were to teach, when I tried actually to teach listening in Italian, which happened once, I realized how much I don't know. So all of those features of connected speech that I realize and have studied for my Delta and my MA and whatever in English, and I can, you know, I'm aware of and I can teach and I can understand why students don't understand something because of these features of connected speech in mm. Italian, I have no idea about. I know they're there. Sometimes I hear them and I'm like, what is that? Um, so uh, <laughs> you see what I'm saying here? Yeah. So that explicit knowledge of them right. as a teacher, you might need. For, for lack of a better analogy, because I don't really have a good one, I'm going to throw this one out, that listening is like the neglected child of the language parents. You know, the parents have four kids, the four skills, and then for whatever reason, listening is the neglected child. And it's the one that, for some reason, there's this conception that it's the one that students will just pick up because when people are talking, you're quote unquote listening, right? We have very complicated writing lessons where they have to write and use this language and vocabulary and lexis and grammar and reading, etc. With listening, there, there just doesn't seem to be that. And I'm wondering what you guys think is the cause of that. What, what causes this myth that students can pick up listening skills just by existing so to speak and of course there's a lot of truth in that but only if they're ready and their proximal development is there and they're listening to things that are at the same level as them so with that in mind where does that that conception come from that listening just just improves on its own and, and i would argue that it's actually the last one to improve because it's so difficult for for us to actually do it when you watch a ted talk with subtitles while you're reading you're not listening right so there's so many things that challenge students to actually put themselves in a situation to actually be listening i think it's money really um ah. <laughs> it's going to cost more to train teachers to listen um commercial elt interests um you know they're going to prioritize happy students and it's easier to keep your students happy by having a teacher in a classroom teaching what is easily observable. So if you can teach writing and reading, your student has something to take home, something tangible. Speaking, they can remember that they've said something. Listening, it's difficult because it's, it depends on, you know, 
on mental processes that are not easily observed. And so where's the money in that? Um, it's really inconvenient. So why would you, as a, you know, if you were a language school owner with, you know, a number of schools nationwide and you had um, minimally qualified teachers coming into your mm -hmm. schools, they don't know how to teach listening. You don't have to pay for it if you just avoid the subject. So that's why I think. Um, and I think as teachers get more and more experienced, they realize their shortcomings and probably one of two things happen. They're either going to continue avoiding uh, teaching listening or they're going to try to figure out why it's so difficult to teach. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Uh, well, 100% obviously. Um, and training teachers in teaching listening is extremely hard um, because of all the reasons that Mark has already discussed. Um, I think in terms of where this conception comes from, uh, there could be a lot of answers. We've already talked about the sort of the primacy of sound and uh, in, in sort of natural approaches to language teaching. So, you know, earlier methods. Um, there, there was this conception that by listen, just by you know the language would develop just by listening initially, um, and that that could be also, I suppose, where it comes from. Mm. One of the things I was going to say, and I think this is related to what Mark and what Kiara have said, and, and Andrew probably answers your question. I think there is this often, I would say, a misconception that. Again, going back to the beginning of our of our um, roundtable, if the students have listened to a text, we know it wasn't necessarily a listening lesson. If the students have spent most of the lesson speaking, as Mark said, it wasn't necessarily a speaking lesson. Very much like if the students have read a text, it wasn't necessarily a reading lesson. And very much like if the students have written a text, it wasn't necessarily necessarily a writing lesson. I think there is a difference between testing practicing and actually learning this skill. So um, I have here a list of five activities that I've collected from observing teachers, from talking to teachers. And these are things that teachers believe they are doing in the classroom and is actually helping the students to, you know, learn how to listen. So I'm gonna throw them out there and I want you to comment on each of them by saying, you know, this is testing, this is practicing, or this is actually indeed teaching listening. So the first one is students listen to an audio text and they answer a list of comprehension or multiple choice questions. Is that testing, practicing, or, or teaching listening? I feel like this is a leading question a bit. <laughs> oh, <you're... laughs> no, well, yeah, clearly that would be testing. Yeah. yeah, but I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes it's not even that because you can mm. guess the answers to those uh, questions without even listening to the audio um that the answer to that question is basically just ah really <laughs> yeah although i guess it depends what use you make of the answers of the students if it just ends that way you know you check their answers and that's it then yes okay you've maybe you've not done much but if you do something with those answers then that's a bit different okay sure nice Here's a second one. Students listen to a text and see if that text matches um, a text that they have read. Is that testing, 
teaching or practicing listening? I think there's a place for it. It's one of those things that generally happens teaching for things like the TOEFL test and so on. Mm -hmm. um, it's training working memory to an extent, so you can cope with longer texts. But I think it's putting the cart before the horse. I think <laughs> we, we need to look at kind of actually getting those words um, to be able to be passed or, you know, the parts of those words and the, the single sounds to be heard more or less correctly more and more often before we look at processes like that. And I think um, materials as they stand um, sometimes they're putting those activities into um, kind of learners um, kind of they're putting those activities in front of the learners before they're really ready for it. A lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree with that, actually. Um, and also in an activity like that, you would have, you know, the reading text and students reading the reading test. But what have they understood of that reading test? How are they able to tell if what they're listening is actually what they've read? So there's a massive gap again. <laughs> you know, between what you're giving them and what they're actually receiving, that internal syllabus, you know, where where are they? Are they ready for it? Uh, and what are they actually understanding? So. Yeah. Okay, Quite I have another one here. It's busy work as well. <laughs> yes, yes, another one. Students listen to a uh, flight announcements and they do this to find the time of the one that they want to, <laughs> um, you know. Take. Pick. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was going to make a point about this, actually, earlier when you said listening, you know, isn't really taught um, as much as perhaps other skills. Um, and I think when it comes to listening, the probably the strategies or whatever you want to call them, to me, they're not really strategies, but uh, the, the listening processes in a way, I guess, that um, most teachers would be familiar with are, you know, listening for details and listening for gists. So this would be listening for details. Um, um, and unlike other skills, perhaps this is as much as uh, is commonly known. So not a lot more than this is commonly known. And again, that reflects what goes on in a lot of textbooks. Yeah, I think it comes, comes close to um, a task-based uh, language teaching uh, activity. There's a lot you can do with it. Um, certainly if your learners are having problems kind of understanding the differences between those announcements and they're they're having problems then you it's an invitation to kind of roll the audio back and focus on the difficult parts and then hopefully some learning can take place as well as just the practicing and assessing mm. okay one more for you guys um students listen to a 30-minute lecture and then they take notes um, but but that is an ability you need to develop actually, and there's uh, there's been a bit of research about that as well recently that I've read. Um, it isn't a you know it isn't necessarily um, testing per se. I wouldn't say, um, yeah. and it is a useful skill. And and I want to clarify as well that the listening for details that we talked about before is also something that students need. It's a case mm -hmm. of how you do it in the classroom, yeah. but it is useless. Okay. Yeah, I think it's practice as well. Um, 
and it is it is important and i think it's important that students don't do this in isolation so clearly this is something that would be used for um you know, getting students ready for study abroad or something like that and nobody goes into study abroad in a vacuum there are usually kind of support systems in place and you know kind of international students are kind of advised to um kind of mix together and make friends within their program and so there'd be the case of listening to a lecture and you know discussing it with friends afterwards like what did you make of that like mm -hmm. did, was i right in understanding this and so on mm -hmm. so um, mm -hmm. And we can do that in our classrooms. It's one of the things that it's probably quite easy to simulate um, compared to some of the more far-fetched things that happen in <laughs> listening texts. I do that all the time just with my friends. Hey, what do you mean by that? What would you say? What was that? I mean, it's just listening is inherently difficult, right? Um, I'm hearing some consistent answers from, from the two of you, and it seems that, uh, if I'm inferring correctly, textbooks are driving how listening is taught in the classroom. Agree or disagree? Um, agree, but I don't know what Mark will say, but I think progressively less so. Um, and in the future, it, it, this, I'm hoping and I think that this is going to be less the case. I don't know the extent to which this will happen quickly, but uh, yes, it is still, I guess, in um, most areas of the world, uh, certainly in the context I've worked worked in um fairly textbook driven still yeah yeah um again I, I agree i think it's becoming less and less so because you know the internet is the thing and if you're not keen on the text that's in your book then well you know it's i hate to be kind of criticizing no, no, don't be shy um, come on so, uh, <laughs> uh, well you know it's it's good in some ways that you know TED talks are becoming the go-to for teachers because it's one of the very few English as a lingua franca resources that we really have, and mm. that has seen sort of mass adoption. Um, I have my own issues with TED talks um, personally. Let's talk about that too, because <laughs> we also have issues with TED talks. Well, I mean it's pushing a sort of neoliberal agenda and you might also say it's the dumbing down of public intellectualism as well um but um but it, it, at the same time you know there are not many chances for learners to be exposed to indian englishes israeli englishes you know we've more and more of my students are going to be uh graduating university and then dealing with um, other English speakers from the, you know, expanding circle countries, you know, mm -hmm. from uh, Kanagaraja's studies. Uh, sorry, uh, no, that, that's not Kanagaraja, is it? It's uh, Kachu. But um, so not, not the Britain, North America, Australia, New Zealand. Um, so, you know, I've been teaching uh, Japanese people who need to um, liaise with uh, people in Congo, Djibouti, um, and then also you know Vietnam on a daily basis, and so, but not really British people or anything like that. So 
resources are pretty thin on the ground. So I can say TED is a good thing for that. Um, and But it, it's becoming sort of the only right. uh, thing that people are doing because it is quite formulaic and mm. scripted too. Yes. Well, I mean, that's a thing. Those presentations are rehearsed to within an inch of their life for the most part. So, <laughs> I mean, um, I guess what you guys would think about that. But I mean, it's it's nice for it's a certain genre, obviously, too. And you can do genre analysis with it. But yeah, sticking you're talking about things in isolation. Nothing should be in isolation. It should never be the only resource that we use. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, I think the point being made here is is an obvious one that uh, a skill focus lesson in this case listening has to do more than just use the skill we actually have to teach the skill so in the next segment we're going to take a short break now but we're going to be talking a little bit about the history of listening and we'll talk a little bit about listening heaven and then listening hell developing as a teacher isn't easy it's even more challenging doing it solo if you are looking to join a passionate community of teachers who love to learn, then the Learn Your English teaching membership can help. The Learn Your English membership allows teachers to develop what they want when they want to through monthly challenges, webinars, reflection tasks, and application to your individual teaching context, the membership brings like-minded people together from all around the world. If you love improving and taking risks in education, then join their growing community of teaching professionals today. Find out how at learnyourenglish.net backslash memberships. Hi, everybody. My name is Thiago Freire, and I'm from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Fala, galera. Meu nome é Thiago Freire, eu sou de São Paulo, Brasil, e você está escutando o Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Espero que vocês gostem. Okay, so with segment two, we're going to jump into the current state of listening in ELT. And of course, we're heading towards what should be done, what should be changed, if anything. Um, but before we get to that, I think we should talk about what the current state is. And we'll call this listening heaven, question mark, because I think we all we all know what's coming, what how textbooks set up listening to be done in class. You have a bit of a lead in maybe some pre-teaching vocabulary. We can talk about if that's effective, not effective, advisable, inadvisable. Uh, we have maybe a gist task. We have maybe a detailed task. We may have a, a listening cycle for some language. And then we have some sort of production task at the end of the lesson. We have some feedback, maybe some homework. And then we move on and we might do a writing lesson or we might talk about a completely different topic. Um, that was the abridged version, but am I missing anything and how, how that might go? No, um, <laughs> unless, like, well, unless you're preparing students for, for an exam and then it's mm. a lot more structured than that. Each lesson um, tends to be somewhat kind of self-contained when it comes to listening um, because we have just all these diverse topics that carry our listening, and, but it's really just an excuse to teach speaking or maybe some writing uh, from the listing but often it's speaking um but it doesn't have to be that way um yeah and there are some really good 
things in some textbooks. I could knock textbooks all day. I frequently do. But there are some really good things hidden in there. Um, but so one of my big bugbears is that there's a lack of bottom-up decoding skills in the materials that we have. But it's sort of not really true um, because it's masquerading as pronunciation teaching. Mm. Um, so there's usually that little track after the main listening where they've isolated some of the words. And it's frequently done with schwa sounds or <laughs> maybe your uh, TH sounds and listen to these and repeat after the CD. But this could be done as a little bit of training for listening to those sounds. Right. Okay. Um, and yeah. Sorry, uh, I was also going to say, Mark, I think you make a very good point that listening is done for speaking a lot of the time. What I find and what I found in my research is that it's done um, for grammar and for vocabulary very often as well. So um, it's almost like listening to a little text or whatever is done to highlight features of grammar or vocabulary. And the interesting thing is that students actually see through that. Um, I've, you know, I've done research in, in secondary school. Um, and and my interviews with students actually revealed this. They, they they kind of think that yeah, well we did that song, but it was just because of the you know the past simple or whatever. Um, so so they actually do see through that. Yeah, and oh. the thing with the grammar, it's <laughs> if listening is such a difficult skill for our learners to kind of develop, why are we using that? as a vehicle for mm. teaching grammar and vocabulary. Mm. It's such a really bizarre, illogical way of going about it when you <laughs> when you think about it. And it's, true. it's it's also a really weird thing to do because it's largely taught through a kind of input flood of putting all those different those uh, same structures in there. Um, so like uh, Kiara was saying, you know, past simple examples. And it's very rarely like that in natural mm. speech, even right. things that are scripted like Netflix and stuff. It's not going to be, oh, well, here are 50 examples of the past simple and summarize this. Of course it isn't. You're listening because <laughs> you want to make sense of the story and there'll be bits of the past mm. simple, sure, but there'll be present simple and present perfect and god knows what else in there but i think so, in the, sorry uh, uh, in defense of i guess teachers in a way if we're talking about commercially driven elt um, we do know you know research has consistently shown that learners but learners place so much importance on grammar unlike loads of teachers who actually would like to experiment who are more I don't know, shall we call them communicative approaches um, or task-based approaches? They want to innovate. A lot of teachers do want to innovate and students consistently value grammar over most other things. And that mm. could be an explanation as to why listening and so many other things are actually just uh, there to serve the purpose of teaching grammar and vocabulary. I'm glad you said that because I think the conversation usually revolves around teachers do this and teachers yeah. do this. But of course, I mean, textbooks are set up in a way, but Blame can be spread around, I'm sure. But Mark, you actually just recently published an article that I found in the Journal of Second Language Teaching and Research, and you interviewed teacher beliefs on bottom-up approaches to listening. And I think yes. the results are interesting, right? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's not as grim a picture as uh, listeners might have been led to believe so far from my uh, <laughs> grim tone. Um, that's just because I'm naturally miserable. Um, so, um, no, there's a there's a, mon- a sizable minority of teachers teaching bottom-up uh, processes. And looking at my data, it would appear that a lot of those teachers are probably your non-native teachers in their countries or you know so we're talking about teachers who share the same first language with their learners quite a lot of the time because they understand which sounds are difficult for their learners Um, whereas people who were in my shoes when I first started teaching new to a country don't know the language then no, you're not going to have a really good handle on what sounds are difficult what, or even what kind of difficulties your learners are going to have. You're just there to be kind of the model of English. And, you know, you're not, I don't want to be too pessimistic here, but a lot of language teaching companies are, it's, English is not something to be taught. It's, English is a verb and you're Englishing at the students and they're paying for that as a product because there's an expectation that, you know, the osmosis effect is actually working and it really isn't. And that's Mm. one of the things I really, really cringe about from my early days in teaching. Um, But there are, you know, I don't want to say bottom up is the be all and end all because it really isn't it has to be you know balanced with uh, top down things like you know genre knowledge and so on mm-hmm. but there's definitely a there's a time and a place for top down skills and you know it's you know everything good in moderation building on that i think there is reason to be um you know to be hopeful like building on the positivity that mark just expressed um no actually i do think that um mark was making a very good point when he said um teachers for for whom english isn't necessarily the first language and certainly all the teachers that i've worked with um most of of whom are not native speakers they can tell the difficult is actually there is research that tells us that teachers are not that bad at um, identifying the students' difficulties in listening. And also there's research that's fairly recent research from a couple of years ago from um, uh, Renandia, from, from a, a few actually uh, scholars that uh, interviewed uh, teachers in China uh, about students' difficulties and what solutions there could be to tackle these different difficulties. And actually there were quite a few good ideas. Um, in there. Um, what I would argue is the teachers I've worked with actually who again are mostly non-native speakers, they do listen to the input before they, you know, they plan their classes, which isn't something that I could say for myself every time I've done a lesson or for, I don't know if mm, you know this could be applied to anybody. They do listen to it. Um, they do sort of naturally and they develop expertise in identifying what issues could be difficult. And I'm not just talking about sounds here, talking more holistically about what could be difficult for students. Uh, and from my data, actually, from my study in secondary schools, um, 
I noticed that they actually, there, there was always an element of reflection. So um, teachers would tell me, yes, I brought this, you know, I did this class on this listening. I was really afraid. I was anxious. There was this element of anxiety in some of the interviews. I was a bit anxious it would be too difficult, but then they did well. Uh, and when they said I was anxious, it was too difficult. They always gave me reasons why they thought it might be too difficult, whether it might be uh, the density of information or the density of unknown vocabulary or uh, other factors. So there is an element of reflection there. Um, mm. The extent to which this is conscious, I don't know, but uh, but there is an element of reflection there, which I think is really encouraging. Mm. In any of your, your research, is, is there, and this might be an impossible question, so I apologize in advance, <laughs> but is it, are we able to know to what extent the foreignness of the topic being discussed in a listening text, how problematic that is in as opposed to the actual linguistic features that give students trouble? Lee and I used to work in a university context, and we have no data for this, but we were pretty convinced that it wasn't necessarily the students' listening skills in terms of the, their ability, but just the concepts in the texts were so foreign to them yeah. that they were not able to understand within the context of what's happening, how that language applied. Is well, it possible to measure that? It is possible. To, well, okay. <laughs> it's possible to measure that with limitations, obviously. If you're relying okay. on self-reports, they are self-reports and they're done either as recall, you know, uh, stimulated recall protocols after you've finished doing a listening with the student, and that obviously presents gaps, you know, they're, they're reliable only to an extent, or you can do it while they're doing the task as well, you pause it and you ask them what was difficult. So you can see that there are limitations in this approach. Uh, you don't, you can't literally know what's happening in their minds, they have to tell you. Um, so there are limitations, but there is quite a lot of research actually in the topic that I'm going to call generally listening difficulties. It's a mm. bit of a generic term, but it's actually when it comes to learners and listening, so not teachers and listening necessarily, but learners and their approach to listening, listening difficulties is, I think, the topic that's been researched the most. Um, the problem with the research on listening difficulties is that they use each study uses different categories. So they're really I've, I've recently mm. finished my literature review on it. It's really difficult sometimes to compare studies and to replicate studies for that specific reason. But one finding that I think I was quite clear is that aspects of the input, however they're defined, and, and again, they're defined differently in different studies, aspects of the input, including topic, are definitely a, a hindrance for students. And again, the topic, depending on how much background knowledge they might have about it, and how much sort of mental space they have to apply that top-down mm -hmm. knowledge while they're listening, uh, because that's another issue as well to do right. mm -hmm. with working memory and, and other aspects. Um, but that does facilitate listening and uh, listening to an uninteresting topic as well on top of a foreign topic. Uh, it, yeah, well, it's reported to cause, you know, students to get distracted and to not want to persevere with the listening. Um, right. And foreign topics, I think, is, uh, you know, if, if we're talking about topics that students don't know much about, it will also depend on the density of information. Mm. Right, of, of foreign information in a way. Right. And then from the teacher side, I imagine, I've been here, I'm sure we've all been here. If I have a text like that in my, in my curriculum, that's where the, the pre 
listening stages expand and Leo's going to touch on this and how it grows and, and gets longer because I want to make sure that my students are ready to listen to whatever it is, but that's, <laughs> that's backwards, right? Well, um, I, I'll never forget observing a lesson. And again, we're talking about, about teaching. I would say that teaching well, teaching listening well is a problem as going back to what Mark said. The problem is that we teach well in a, in a fantasy land, right? Um, we have this very well established listening comprehension methodology that counts as all we need to do is help learners achieve their linguistic or sorry their listening objectives and again i think a lot of teachers got stuck in a rut and they have been teaching listening the same way and i think it was john field in 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 his um one of his papers it wasn't the book he basically said that this current methodology is basically off target Right. And I think everyone is going to agree with that because it's just providing practicing and listening. It's not really teaching the skill. It's just adding another text to the student's repertoire. Um, and one of the things I've noticed uh, observing lessons is that teachers spend an awful time, an awful lot of time with the before listening. I actually observed a lesson where the teacher spent over an hour, over an hour just doing before listening and the listening lesson was about five ten minutes and then a lot of time on the on the post listening so i think my question to both of you is the current methodology is not listening heaven and of course we know that listening hell is when there is no lead in there is no you know the physical conditions are not appropriate as kiara mentioned sometimes the the, the foreignness of of the topic um could be a problem unappealing topics um maybe you just we're relying too much on one model so my question to you then is what's wrong with our listening procedures what's wrong with the current teaching methodology is pre-listening is before listening an important aspect of this should we just ditch it as john field says like just jump into the listening forget the the before listening i i have something to say about this yeah um, go ahead please i hope you guys have something to say about it <laughs> I, i'm sure we have a lot to say about this um the first thing i want to say is yes the fact that teachers do pre-listening activities for um big portions of classes is a well-known fact although I would also argue and this is a point I really do want to make there isn't a lot of empirical evidence of what teachers are doing in their classes when it comes to listening so I've only been able to find very few studies with documented observed practice okay. and so a point that derives from this is that a lot of what we're saying is based on our our own practice so anecdotal evidence uh, analysis of textbooks then I'm not saying that this isn't how a lot of teachers teach listening or do listening rather uh, but I am saying that things are changing and I am saying that we need more empirical evidence to actually continue talking about what's wrong with listening so this is a point I wanted to make mm. um, about pre-listening it's um long it's something that teachers do do I've also observed lessons in which it was like 95 percent of the class but again doesn't this go back to that very deep um deeply ingrained belief that grammar is fundamental that vocabulary is fundamental isn't that it that that listening is a pretext for all of these things yeah. uh, to me that's very consistent um and there, there is research in this, Suzanne Graham, Denise Santos, they've done quite a bit of research uh, on this topic. And it shows that, yes, pre-listening is um, something that teachers do believe is useful. Another question is whether it is useful or not. Right. Um, 
but I think that uh, to talk about whether or not it's uh, useful, you would have to talk about what specific activities you're doing. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing pre-teaching vocabulary, the evidence actually shows that there's a, there's a lot of mixed findings as to whether pre-teaching vocabulary actually does help with uh, listening comprehension. Uh, when it comes to prediction of content, however, so you predict, uh, you predict the content before the listening starts, that seems to be a little bit more useful, especially if it's followed up by checking on predictions. So mm -hmm. that develops that metacognitive knowledge that you need to not let your top-down knowledge overtake, kind of, you know, take over mm -hmm. and, and just mm -hmm. um, in that sense. Um, so prediction of content seems to be a little bit more useful than vocabulary. I would say, based on the evidence. And it does depend on the, the kind of the listening proficiency of students with that mm. as well, because sometimes if it's kind of put on students too early, then they're predicting things and then they're getting kind of false positives in their predictions and it's really not happening for them. So it, it's sort of a it's very much a case by case thing as uh, with a lot of the things in uh, language teaching research. Um, I think pre-listening, I don't really like the idea of criticizing what goes on in other teachers' classrooms, mm. but I, you know, being a, a man of a certain age, you know, rail against the system as it were. Um, <laughs> and the, you know, the, the system has been in place where, you know, teachers are taught how to teach and therefore it's replicated in some form or another in various classrooms and the fact is it's just like okay the listening is you activate the schema okay mm -hmm. and in a Japanese classroom for example some of my students will have no schematic hooks um, for this thing that is, you know, based on North American cultural knowledge uh, that's in the textbook. And there's nothing there for schema activation. So that's a waste of time, really. Um, <laughs> in other ways, yes, it's, it's important because if it's something that really is just kind of general knowledge, then yeah, go with it. But some research that I did, uh, it's actually research that wasn't published but it was conducted at the same time as uh, the paper that I recently published that Andrew just talked about. Schema uh, activation activities. Um, the teachers that did that, it um, negatively correlated with teaching bottom-up skills. So, oh. um, and my theory with this, and I don't know whether it's true because I didn't carry out interviews with the teachers, but it's that the the CELTA way of teaching listening is basically orthodoxy mm -hmm. and nobody dare deviate from that because it's the right way yes. and PPP is the right way. I mean, I had Japanese colleagues who haven't even been CELTA trained saying that, you know, present, practice, produce is just, it's the right way to teach it's like well there isn't no right way to teach it's just, it's contextual it, yeah and it's incredibly frustrating so uh, 
yeah. I think a question I would have for both of you is why do you, I mean, we know that this is the pervasive uh, methodology and we, we know it's, it, it doesn't work. I think there are, and I think, I think it was Richard Caldwell who unfortunately just retired because we wanted to have him on the podcast. He, he basically, Andrew was talking about analogies and I remember him making this one analogy where listening lessons are like microwave meals, right? We have the recipes, we have the ingredients and what we do in the listening activities are, is very akin to uh, being in a cookery school where you are eager to learn how to cook the things but you're disappointed when you find out that the course consists of only smelling and tasting pre-cooked oven ready or microwave meals. So perhaps you, we can talk a little bit about what it, the problem is then with, with the current methodology and why teachers are, are still stuck in you know, doing or teaching in this very orthodox way. I don't know about you, Kiara, but like when you've got, this, you've got students that are there to like, they want, they're going to have their listening lesson and then they realize that actually they're going to be trying to identify sounds and things like that for part of the lesson and they realize it's actually not easy it can kind of turn them off a bit and teachers are a bit scared of having those student frowns because um, we all like to think that we're popular teachers or well-liked and that we're doing things that our learners like right yeah yeah and and then like mark was saying it's very contextual as well i still remember when i was getting uh, into you know this topic of listening i was getting more and more interested in it i was teaching a business english class in the evening it was like 9 p.m students had just had a, like a 10 hour day um they would come to my class and i would try to you know do, do the listening and i would repeat it and repeat and i'd be like okay shall we listen to the sounds they were just they would look at me just like why are you making me do this at this time at night um and so nothing like mark was saying nothing really you know can present from context um what i would say is wrong with this idea of the comprehension approach and testing listening or doing this rather than um teaching it is that um well, there's a lot wrong with it. Obviously, it's very teacher-centered. It's very exam-oriented. It's it can, you know, it can exacerbate anxiety in students. It doesn't give students uh, access to uh, a feeling of pro. They don't know if they're progressing because all they 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 can see is the score. If mm. they know how many did I get right, how many did I get wrong, that's it. But they don't mm -hmm. really know how to improve, uh, which goes back to that question that you were asking me before, Leo. So why my students always tell me, oh, how do I improve my listening? Um, the thing with with teaching that way is that you get answers from students and you don't really know how they got to those answers. Mm -hmm. Like Mark was saying, did they just guess? Um, you don't know how they did it. And you don't do anything with those answers. So you don't really use you don't harness the power of actually what you know what you can do with those answers which is go back the wrong answers especially go back and let's see what you didn't get let's see what the the origin of your problem was um so i think that's probably what uh, some of the things that are wrong with this approach um I also think it's daunting, like Mark was saying, for teachers to teach listening. And it's also daunting for teachers to think of completely changing the way they do things. There is uh, a place, there can be a place for teachers uh, for, for comprehension questions. There can be 
um, sort of a middle uh, ground in here. So, okay. so going from this completely comprehension-based approach to a more process-oriented approach can go through different stages. And so mm -hmm. teachers can incorporate new practices in their existing practices. And I think that could be a way to go to change the status quo, perhaps. So that's a really, I think, perfect prelude to segment three, because we're going to talk now, not going to just rant about what's wrong with everything. We're going to actually propose some solutions. And I think you've already started to incorporate that. And I think one of the daunting things is what you mentioned, Kiara, is, is if, if I'm a teacher and I do comprehension-based listening in my class, and I'm on board with not doing that, okay, but what, what should I do? What can I do? What options are available to me? And as the role of the teacher, just like any other task that we do, the student needs to be able to measure their outcome also. One of my very first bosses, not even in teaching in another job, he called himself an expectation manager. That was his, that was his role. So I think that's our role too in, in listening. We had to manage our students' expectations. What is our instruction to them? You're going to listen to this. And what are you supposed to be able to measure for yourself after you, mm -hmm. you do it? I know there's lots of, of conceptions about, oh, my students think they have to understand 100% of every text that they listen to, which is inherently misleading and, and unfair, obviously. So we're going to take a break and then we'll come back and we'll propose some solutions. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Hi, everyone. My name is Carrie, and I'm from Macau. This is Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. 大家好，我嘅名系刘依慈，我嚟自澳门。嚟家听紧嘅系 Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. So we're back here for the final segment of the podcast, and、uh, we're going to be talking about solutions, improvements that we can. We can make, and I have a foundational statement to kick things off. And I think it's it's a quote by Celso Murcia, and I don't I'm paraphrasing it here, but one of the things、um, that I remember from from that specific book, and I think it's called Teaching Pronunciation. And Caldwell actually says that we should ban the word pronunciation, but we'll talk about that another time. But I think it has to do it's 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 related to what、uh, Mark said with the idea of context. But I think we need to ask ourselves. What is our goal as teachers of listening? And I would say, and and Celso Murcia, and I think Goodwin in this book said that it's to help our learners understand fast, messy, authentic speech. So, what can we do? What are the solutions that we have to the current state of English language teaching? I don't think bottom up, as you said, Mark. I find that for some people, it's just bottom up. For some people, is just top down. I, th where is, where is the middle ground here for us? Well, you know, to paraphrase, you know, Diet Coke, 
it can only help weight loss as part of the calorie controlled diet and top down and bottom up are you know they're equally good they're equally bad so, but they need to be balanced so if you have learners relying too much on bottom up um, strategies then they're going to miss things because of working memory limitations they're going to miss things from lapses in concentration and things like that uh, but it, wholly relying upon top-down strategies essentially relegates the listening process to guesswork and you know nobody would really settle for that um, in their first language um, so why would we want our learners to settle for it in their second or their third or their fourth, whichever language? So I think it's it's a bit uh, it's a tricky one um, when you're trying to kind of promote take up of uh, a teaching activity or a teach a way of teaching because you don't want people to abandon uh down strategies if even field says in his book he doesn't want people to abandon the comprehension approach he just wants it to be not the be all and end all mm -hmm. and i think that's the important thing and i think if i can add to that um bottom-up decoding didn't used to be a big thing in language teaching and teaching listening certainly but it has certainly attracted a lot of attention recently so a lot of people uh, like andrew was saying are now focusing on that perhaps to the extent that they think that it is the final solution and it isn't. Uh, and what I want to add on that as well is that top down and bottom up, what you need will depend very much on what you're doing. So what's your purpose? What's the task that you're doing? Um, it will depend also on your level because lower level, there, there has been a lot of research in, you know, what type of direction of processing do expert listeners rely on most and especially lower level listeners rely on most. Um, there doesn't seem to be a final answer on this, but we mm. can say that lower level listeners will struggle a lot more in decoding, so in bottom up, than perhaps listeners who have more have have more expertise, and so they have already auto sort of automatized those processes already, and they can uh, have more mental space for other things, um, for higher order uh, kind of comprehension. But uh, um, there, there is some research that also argues that when you have lower level listeners, um, it might be best to teach them sort of compensatory strategies. Like Mark was saying, they will struggle with, um, for example, concentration. So teaching them strategies that are there to help them tackle um, issues that they have, and they will have a lot more issues than more expert learners. Um, that could be a way, for example. So it doesn't need to be one thing or the other, really. Uh, it's who you have in front of you as learners. What do they need to do and what level are they? I'm sure listeners are probably asking this question at home. What would be an example of, of, of such strategy? Um, there's the different types of strategies, cognitive, metacognitive, socio-effective strategies. There's a lot of uh, debate on what that would be. But an example would be, for you know, um, based on what I was saying before, learning to move on, learning to keep focused and not be hung up on a word that I didn't understand, so moving on with it, or asking for clarification, that's a socio-effective strategy, mm -hmm. so yeah, to compensate yeah. for the fact that I didn't understand. Yeah, I want to uh, make a point about the socio-effective strategies because it is one of the things that tends to get lost. Um, one of the things mm -hmm. I'm doing with one of my listening classes at the moment is 
extensive listening and that the the only rule that I set to them is that they can listen to anything that they want to listen to but they must it must be something that they are actually interested in listening to mm-hmm. um, I know a lot of the literature on extensive reading focuses very much on the vocabulary being manageable and the grammar being manageable but listening I think uh, can be a special case anyway because even if learners know all of the words um, you know from reading and stuff they can't always identify them in a a listening text Mm -hmm. and if it's something that they're actually interested in understanding they're gonna have that much more motivation to actually persevere with the text and Mm. you know have repeated listenings to it and be able to you know bring themselves to you know pause it rewind it and play parts of it again and again and on that as well some some people have argued that what listeners actually need is just more vocabulary so don't bother teaching listening processes just teach more vocabulary because that's actually what they need and this is based a little bit on research on reading like mark was saying Mm. Uh, which has been able to identify how many words you need to understand um, texts at different levels. But doing that in listening has proven a lot more difficult because like Mm -hmm. Mark was saying, knowing a word, well, knowing, kind of, knowing a word doesn't mean you recognise it or you'll understand what what it means in a certain um, context that you're hearing that you can't go back and listen to again, perhaps. So uh, it's a lot more difficult to establish what that threshold is. Are there strategies... Uh, so, uh, sorry, uh, are there strategies that you would recommend? Because the other part of, of teaching, mm-hmm. listening, and, and implementing a better way or solutions starts with text sele- selection, excuse me, as well. Um, and a lot of feedback, of course, from teachers about hesitations of if they want, if I'm a teacher and I want to go outside of my course book and use an authentic text, especially with lower levels, a lot of feedback that teachers provide is, well, it would be too difficult for, for my learners. And that obviously is true in, in the general sense, but what strategies can we give or can we help our teachers do to use authentic text, especially with lower levels, and still use these strategies that you're talking about? Well, I mean, I'm not the right person to ask about text selection because I'm a bit of a heretic. I think anything goes, really, but it's not so much the text itself as how much of the text that you use. Mm-hmm. So there's you can get a lot of mileage out of a short section of a quite challenging text with lower proficiency listeners. And it's that short amount um, that they can play with this again and again. And it's going to be challenging. Of course it is, because we've, as you know, teachers, we, I mean, uh, Kiara was talking earlier on about teachers being able to judge what their learners have difficulties with. Uh, We're not completely clueless. So having a little bit of an idea of what they're going to find difficult, but just keeping it short and, you know, have maybe five sections that you're thinking of focusing on, but have a fallback. What if your learners don't get through all those five sections? You know, then will it be okay if they can get through three of them or something like that? So I think doing a lot more with less 
um, can be key. Um, we're, you know, it's like, why do we need three listening texts in one unit? And each listening text gets progressively longer. It's like you get your two minute text, then your four minute text and your seven minute text. And is it any wonder that, you know, we have half finished textbooks? Um, it's just, Oh, it's a nightmare, isn't it? And a thirty-minute pre-listening stage for each of them. Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Kara. Go ahead. No, no. I was, uh, I was going to say that. Yeah, actually, what a lot of teachers do say is that there's too much in textbooks. Uh, that could also be why. Um, but about yeah, using authentic texts with lower-level learners, it is challenging. But like anything, it will depend on the purpose. What are they actually doing? Do you actually need to use 10 minutes? No, actually, maybe you can just use a shorter section. Um, something you can do is show it to them um, without, for example, if showing a video, which is increasingly the case now in, in listening classes. If you're showing a video, um, show it once again, a short section, show it once without subtitles, perhaps twice without subtitles, have the learners make notes on one side of the page, and then listen again with subtitles and see what the difference is um that that's a very simple exercise i find um and i have done it it's really really useful for reflecting on learning which is something that's so uh sorely lacking in a lot of our classes so that metacognitive reflection what have i done what was different what did i struggle with what can i do better next time um yeah <laughs> Yeah, um, I think as well, hanging some kind of visuals on our listening. It's, you know, unless we are visually challenged or blind, we're generally learning to listen with our vision as well. But it's been neglected because it's much cheaper to provide audio only listening texts. Um, and you can employ any kind of fantasy kind of carrier topics there um, by having actors just read things in a microphone in a room but if you wanted it to look authentic then you need set design and things like that and that costs a lot more money and production values that publishing companies can't recoup from customers because nobody really wants to pay a hundred dollars for a language textbook so no for no. sure. And certainly uh, teachers don't. <laughs> <laughs> Exploiting yeah. text is a good, I'm glad to hear you say that because I always, I, I talk about that a lot, usually with reading, but you know, I, it's kind of a joke, but it's not a joke. You know, you, you do so much work as a teacher to get your students to understand a complicated article or, or, or perhaps a listening text and then the textbook or the course maybe, or the, just the, the brevity of a course asks us to move on. And then we start something else. But I've just spent so much time getting them to actually understand what the text is discussing. That's my opportunity to go deeper into it and exploit it and do a lot of other tasks that 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 require comprehension first. Mm -hmm. And then to move on to another text seems like a waste because then you start the process all over again. Yeah. No, what I was going to say is, so now, since we're talking about solutions, so what would be a good... Again, we don't want to spend an hour... Um, before listening, pre-teaching vocab, activating schema, um, what would be maybe one or two good activities that we could um, use with our students before listening? One of the things we like to do, Andrew and I like doing this a lot, is we just give our students the title of the talk or the title of the conversation. We give them some sort of background, and then we ask them to 
to compose their own comprehension questions um, based on that. So I don't know the value of that. It, based on the research that I have done, I feel like this is something that is more transferable than, than me giving my students a list of comprehension questions. And I spend a little bit of time on that because it also gives me a chance to see whether my students are, are actually critically thinking about the title and, and predicting perhaps um, in a better way, whether this, the, what the focus of this text is going to be. So what would be maybe one or two good activities that you guys use in your classroom before listening, apart from the one that I mentioned? Be my guests. Um, no, I was just going to mention that related to this um, activities that activate schema. Um, I think it is they are good activities, and and the thing mm -hmm. you've described, I find it positive if it goes together with um, checking the prediction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just wanted yeah. to make points again because yeah. just having them predict it's something that I do having them uh, predict or talk about the topic before they start listening. Um, and with a student of mine in particular that, that I can think of, what happens to him is that he thinks he knows what's going to happen in the listening and he doesn't really listen to the words. So he doesn't review his predictions in light of what the audio is actually saying. Um, and that's a problem. Yeah. And he needs to be made aware of that. And he was. Um, and I was going to talk a little bit actually about um, this metacognitive knowledge and how I think it's really important that students find out about themselves, not just about their learning, but about mm -hmm. themselves. But I can leave that for later. Um, so yes, pre prediction as well as checking. Yes. Any any value? Actually, Mark, you're going to say something. Sorry. No, no. Um, I, I I have. Uh... Yeah, basically, this is building on what Kira was saying, you know, um, having students kind of have that prediction, but it, it has to serve a purpose and you're doing something with it. It's not mm -hmm. just you made a prediction and so you, you have to follow, follow that prediction. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, no, it's uh, so things like uh, KWL charts, the no want to learn and learned mm -hmm. charts, mm -hmm. that's quite useful. Um, myself when I have my university students who are about intermediate level with you know wide range of kind of listening abilities to be honest they I try to have them think of a question uh, about the thing they're going to listen to before they listen at least one question and that goes in the bottom of a modified kind of Cornell notes system mm. then while they're listening it's just taking some simple notes of keywords uh, down the side and spelling doesn't matter because we're listening. We're not, mm -hmm. you know, we're not composing the next great American novel. Right. Um, so then after they've listened, they can then uh, write a short summary of what they've been listening to and find out the answer to their question. Or, you know, sometimes it's uh, quite interesting they're like well the listening didn't actually answer my question it's like well then where can you get this information from like, well i don't know and it's like well don't you have a computer in your pocket that you can find this information from and you know then they can evaluate this listening text that they've just mm -hmm. listened to with other information sources that they can uh, access 
quite freely and it builds on learner autonomy as well which is yeah. you know what we really want our yes. goal yeah and and to add to that that's a really important point so when i mentioned before metacognitive knowledge um or metacognition i guess so the ability to think about thinking the ability in our case to think about our listening um a lot of work has gone into it and it has shown that metacognition is quite important for listening comprehension and for it to be sustained in the long term um, and three very important aspects are planning, monitoring, and evaluating. So when Mark was saying evaluating what you've done, that's really important to listening, and it ties in what I was saying before as well. Um, so perhaps before you start the listening, planning, just a very, very short activity, it doesn't need to be long, planning what you're going to do. It helps with learner autonomy, it helps with thinking about the processes, uh, and it helps to build kind of a method, so to speak, that you can then reuse. Um, so what am I going to do in this specific case? What is the task? What will I need to do? What do I think I'll need to do? And what am I actually going to do with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so, we, so we have enough for before. Um, now let's get to the while very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. So what can we do while they're listening? Um, Caldwell talks a lot about this idea of sound. I think he calls it sound shape. And I think, and I agree with him that pre-teaching a word, as you said, Mark, doesn't necessarily mean that the students are going to be able to, to recognize. So perhaps a very good um, activity for while listening is us following this systematic approach to teaching listening, where we play very short segments of the recording, and we ask students to basically listen very carefully and try to understand as many words as they can right? Then give them the script and see if they can compare and see how much they were actually able to understand. Because what I find is that most of the time, a lot of the words that they heard are, are familiar, are words that are known to the students, but they just fail to recognize them in, in fast, authentic speech. So what would be some activities that we can do while students are listening? That is a good activity. It's, um, it's a Pause transcription uh, activity. There's studies of post paused <laughs> transcription, um, which show really interesting. Actually, there was a study a couple of years ago by um, Shepherd is the name of the author, um, and she and her colleagues they listed the types of mistakes that students made. So that's kind of a diagnostic. Um, mm -hmm approach as well helps you to understand what went wrong it is very bottom-up focused because if you think about it the words that they didn't hear they might have clarified if they had been able to listen to the whole passage through top-down knowledge so it is really to do with perceiving words and syllables and sounds and so on uh, so so again if that's the purpose then very well another thing you can do is pause and ask what do you think is going to come after this um, so that's another approach yeah, absolutely. Um, I think as well, um, we don't really as teachers get involved with the same activities that our students are doing. And it's actually some research done by uh, Joseph Siegel. Um, he um, sent collar microphones and recording devices to teachers in uh, Japanese universities and found that actually not many teachers are modeling how to listen. Um, so if we can actually get involved in the listening stage and show how we went about uh, listening to the same thing that our students are doing, then we can give feedback um, and show the difference 
um, between what a successful listener does and what po possibly an unsuccessful listener does, or what a successful listener, uh, a consistently successful listener does with somebody who is successful this time, but maybe lacks confidence with, so they can see what they have been doing mm. right and what may what are some other practices that could be useful for them that they're not employing at the moment that's a really important thing because yeah. um we don't uh, i think we fail to to see the the long-term dimension a little bit and when we think about metacognition and the ability to think about our thinking and about our listening in this case uh, there's two aspects to it one is the here and now so how am I planning, monitoring and evaluating what I'm listening to? And what is the long term dimension? Students need to build this ability of planning in the long term. Uh, so what what are the actions that I can take on a, you know, on a more sustained basis to improve my listening? Mm. It's, it's very interesting what you said, Mike, because um, Andrew and I, we've we've we do this a little bit with writing and we we decided to do what we call we call it live modeling. And we tell our students, you know what? We're going to, you're going to watch us trying to write an introduction to an academic paper or writing a body paragraph. And students can see that because we're on the Google Doc and they can actually see the struggle, the pausing, the, you know, I'm going to rewrite this sentence. And I think, I think that's very encouraging because it shows our students that even as a proficient um, speaker of the language or a proficient listener, you're you often struggle, but you're employing these very important um, strategies so i think there is there is value in that and i've never thought about doing that with listening but that i will happened, do that with that listening. happened to me in my class yesterday i was doing it in the google doc and it it's what i wrote it sucked it was terrible i was like guys i'm sorry but this actually i'm not sorry because this is a really good example of just how hard writing is and it's i think they have that expectation that we just do it you know really well the first time and i say no <laughs> this is it's really hard that's not how it happens um, I guess actually, by la that's something. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> that's something you can actually do even within a comprehension approach. I observed a few teachers for my um, for my doctoral research, and one mm. of them um, modeled how she got to a certain answer. She was teaching for a certificate, and after finishing the listening, she would model what a mistake. Well, she would explain what mistake she had made, which I know takes a lot of vulnerability because. Yeah. We, teachers are expected to know everything but she got over that um and she actually uh, told learners how she got to answers and how and what was difficult for her and what problems she had and how she solved problems at times so that teacher modeling again mm. yeah uh, i mean i use a popular uh pay to stream video site in my classroom um and uh <laughs> Sometimes We're not sponsored, I, so yeah. yeah. Um, I'll, uh, I'll, um, uh, I'll, I'll listen with uh, students, and uh, sometimes it's like, okay, so what did you hear there? And I'm like, I don't know. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know either. Um, and it's totally fine. It adds nothing to our understanding. So, is it important to bear this in mind? Uh, and they're hesitant to say like something doesn't matter but like of course it doesn't matter because if you don't understand it it's just gonna bug you for the rest so abandon it and move on with your life and it's having that courage to say that actually not everything that you listen to is meaningful content right okay 
especially when you listen to Lou and I are big fans of having our students listen to podcasts that they like on whatever topic because most of them not even, you know the opposite or the antithesis of TED Talks perhaps because they're usually non-scripted and not, and spontaneous and that's when you get a lot of those um uh well like uh right and they they're nonsense and they just means people all starters think, think and all yeah. starters um but hopefully it trained they're training themselves to to hear those type sounds which obviously is important I, um just as we wrap up here the last question i think that we have given the current situation in you know in the world are there any strategies or maybe they all transfer but is there anything that you think is specific that teachers could use with the online world, the online teaching classroom, the online classroom that would be particularly beneficial as we continue to venture into this seemingly indefinite online classroom? There's a lot of open resources. Um, I don't know if Mark agrees with this, but they have been booming in the past few years. A lot of people are... Uh, there's both what we call open... Um, sort of open source so open educational resources which um created in like creative commons uh, licenses and also just generally websites that offer practice uh, which we can use i know that um ted talks have their issues but the um there's a website that's called the ted corpus search i want to yes. say it's really yeah. interesting because you can use the videos with or without subtitles and when you pause the video um, it shows you the last few seconds worth of subtitles and you can choose to have that in English and or another language. Oh, so okay. um, that's that's quite useful, I feel, um, to work on that, to work on ev- anything, to be honest, to work on, yes. you know, have you understood the last few seconds, for example, like you were mm-hmm. saying, that's about decoding. Um, so that's a really useful um, tool at the moment i think there's many more but i'm going to let mark speak for a bit no i think i've been talking quite a lot uh, but uh i i think um i'd like to um say that learner autonomy is a big thing with listening and you know the it's basically what we've been talking about is that testing listening is the way it's taught but learners can do this themselves yes and the current textbook orthodoxy that if the learners have the cd or the mp3 files there is nothing to stop them pressing play and answering those questions by themselves and referring to an answer key somewhere else at another time so why are we doing it in the classroom i think it would be better to make better use of our time by setting a task and then giving some kind of focus on the difficulties faced in the listening that mm. teachers can see that students are having. And that doesn't happen. And to me, it sort of is mind-blowing in a way because it makes so much sense to me, but it's always kind of shooed away as kind of, well, that's impractical or mm that's impossible how can we possibly train so many teachers at one time and it's not a difficult thing to do in in my opinion um and with the learners going then to their textbook stuff or even you know non-graded texts there are fantastic sites like youglish and playphrase Mm -hmm. where they can get the bottom-up practice outside of the classroom as well um, they can look up words that they have had problems with listening to 
and play examples of those again and again. And that's that's great. I mean, I wish that half of these things that are there for English were uh, in existence for Japanese or mm-hmm. you know German or Danish, which is a language I've just been getting interested in. Ooh. So yeah. Danish, huh? Yeah. Skull. Well, I was, I was at a phonology conference and uh, somebody said, oh, yeah, the Danish has like just this number of vowels. And, you know, um, I was like, oh, my God, that's even more than English. And yeah, yeah and if you can't, if you can't uh, understand them all or you can't uh, use them uh, quite correctly, then uh, Danish speakers will just frequently pop back into English. And it's like, oh, my God, maybe this is something that i should look at for a bit of a challenge mm. or something so yeah so but yeah anyway there's a I lot think, of resources for english yeah. and yeah those are all um, very good points yeah go ahead sorry just adding to that um i do think language um language learner autonomy is really important right now especially with lockdowns being enforced around the world and when the lockdown started in Italy I actually started sort of sharing these resources because I, I I kept getting friends and people asking me how can I you know how can I use this time that I'm stuck at home to improve my English um, I even made a twit I think a Twitter thread out of it um, there are things they can use very simply even like um for example, there's a Chrome extension that's called Language Learning with Netflix. Um, you watch Netflix, you've got your subtitles, you can just click on any word, it will tell you what it means. Uh, it's really simple. There's really simple things that you can use to improve and to, to, to keep yourself motivated. Um, lyrics training, again, mm-hmm. um, a small thing to do with music. Uh, again, identifying words, the bottom of decoding, and it's, it's a game, it's a kind of a game as well. Mm-hmm. Um, tube quizzed is another yes. good one. Yes, oh, I love that. I think, yeah. yeah, we would all have only good things to say about tube quizzed. Um, so, so there is plenty out there. Not all of it is good. These are good, but yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, what I was gonna say, I was gonna share because we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up. But I have a, a, a screenshot here of a lesson that I taught yesterday with one of my Japanese students, and this is a very good example of a student who is applying. All the things that we have just talked about, and I'm not trying to brag, this is none of this is my work, this is her, because all we focus on is these uh, squeeze zones, right? These, these, these blur gaps, um, the, the sound shapes, right? And I don't know if you guys can see it here, but this is a, a screenshot. Um, she was trying to decode a very short segment of this text on binge watching, and she came to this not only is she came up with this, and she's a Japanese student, Mike. So she came up, Mark, she came up with a sudden interior lifestyle mm-hmm. or a sudden entire lifestyle. But she was close. And I told her, I said, you know what? The fact that you are actually able to decode this as two different words, and of course, the word was sedentary. I said, when we listen to it many, many, many times, you could see that this was actually very similar in, in shape. To those words do you oh, guys yeah. have any yeah, anything to say on this i mean sedentary is such a low frequency word anyway right. so it's unlikely to make it to many of the word lists that you know college students are going to be looking at and uh, you know i don't think i'd ever used the word sedentary until i was about 17. it's <laughs> oh, a shame because i had a very sedentary <laughs> lifestyle <laughs> yeah yeah 
<laughs> and another good point about this, I think, is that now with all the um, the technology that we have, we can play with the speed of delivery of text. Uh, if you ask any student, why do you struggle with listening? Nine out of 10 will say because it's too fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, there's a lot of research that suggests that it's not such a key difficulty. I mean, it, do, it can make listening more difficult. I'm not saying it can't. Um, but for example, if you'd have played that little chunk, it could, it could have been, what, three, four seconds at reduced speed, you could have actually shown your student if you'd have known that she said, oh, I struggle, it's too fast, it's too fast. You could have actually deconstructed that belief. You know, I'm playing this a little bit slower now. Do you understand it? And mm -hmm. likely the answer would have been no. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really important that yeah. students um, beliefs really are addressed in the classroom because yeah, they point. can just get stuck. Great point. Well, Absolutely. Leo, I think... Uh, no, I think we're good. I mean, my, we could go on for like another hour here. My brain uh, is tired from all the listening that I've been doing. Maybe that's a good sign, I think. And speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any final messages that you guys want to send out there? Any final comments? This is the time. I hope we're not being too negative on, on the no, current... No, exactly. I, I, I yeah, just that's really... probably the point yeah. I wanted to make. Yeah. Uh, that I think based on my my work, my observation, my uh, everything I've been doing in the past few years, I think there is reason to be um, hopeful. Uh, I do acknowledge all of the difficulties that Mark um, has, has explained so clearly, um, but I do think there, that things are moving a bit. And I think sometimes stigmatizing current approaches with that uh, definition, the comprehension approach, is it necessarily helpful? I'm just wondering if there couldn't be a more descriptive, perhaps, uh, term or just acknowledging that teachers are doing very different things and that a lot of them are actually very resourceful. They are asking the question that we are asking, how do we improve listening? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I, I just want to avoid that stigmatization, if you see what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I mean, if I come across as being kind of like, teachers are doing things wrong that's definitely not the message that i want to be sending <laughs> out here um, it's actually i think teachers are not really rewarded for kind of following their own intuitions um and a lot of teachers are, are scared to follow their intu intuitions but i think you know you're a professional and you're in it's, your classroom is your domain and you know your learners so follow your intuition and sometimes you will make mistakes but i think everybody makes mistakes in their classroom uh, mm. uh, me more frequently than many i'm sure <laughs> but um, if you try things out you can find things that work for you and your learners mm -hmm. and don't be afraid of a bit of learner autonomy outside of the classroom as well with some of the things that are not really requiring a teacher to get done well i mean we don't know what we don't know right exactly yeah <laughs> that's it i think a lot of clarify, that's not an no. excuse for, sorry for yeah go ahead mark was making very important points when mm -hmm. i said the negative points uh, they actually need to be acknowledged because there does you know there, there does need to be a lot more training uh mm -hmm. investment if we want to call it that yeah. uh, in training teachers um and yes the problem of textbooks also is an issue so that needs to be acknowledged i think if we want to advance the field absolutely okay yeah let's make it happen oh, yeah yeah please Everybody well make some open materials <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> and thus 
finishes our first roundtable podcast episode. So thank you for joining us and being part of the first one. Thank Thank you you for having me. Cheers. And thanks for listening, everyone. Right, Andrew, what were some of the most important takeaways that you have um, gotten from this podcast today? You know, I think that was really interesting. I'm exhausted after uh, two hours of listening and speaking and talking about that. But I, I learned a lot and I'm happy to see that, you know, what I've thought about listening is kind of on par with what Mark and Kiara are talking about through their research. Mm-hmm. And that listening is its own world and it's, it needs to be dealt with uh, not as a present presenting language but as you know teaching the skill of listening and also that there isn't one way to do it you know sometimes comprehension questions have a, have a role and have a purpose um but don't stop there and also we can do different things to work on the the top down and bottom up as they were saying in the same lesson i think that's that's my biggest takeaway mm-hmm. oh absolutely for me it's it's what you said right but just building up on that it's just really moving away from a product um approach to listening which is what is the right answer what is the right answer and moving towards a more of a of a of a process approach to listening which is again using the listening as a way to diagnose some of the problems using the incorrect answers from the students to detect weaknesses or comprehension problems and then using that to design very specific activities to target those specific areas. You know what was really, just as you said that, you made me think of this and what Kiara Mm. said in diagnosing issues with listening. Mm. And a lot of, and and she talked about debunking this myth that students say that, oh, I couldn't understand because the speaker spoke too quickly. Or I couldn't understand because all the words that are, are unknown to me and how she plays it slower and slower and they still have the same problem and this just you know we talk about transcription activities and having students really become aware and this is a big problem with listening is that different students obviously have different issues with mm-hmm. what they can and cannot understand but if we have students transcribe or really you know say back to us what did i hear what did i hear mm-hmm. and that seems like a really good activity to help students become independent listeners and improve on their yeah. own because then they when we show them the transcript as Kira said oh I know all of those words I can read that mm-hmm. just fine so what yeah. is the issue with with listening and then issues with connected speech as a receptive skill not as a productive skill but as a blocker for a receptive understanding I thought that's a really cool thing and I'm going to use that a lot more in my mm-hmm. classes mm-hmm. yeah and uh, the last thing before we say goodbye i think is we need to tell all our listeners that we have a little a little surprise for everyone that's right a little easter egg here at the end of this long episode so if you've made it this far in the episode thank you very much congratulations and uh, a little bit of an easter egg for you uh, as maybe you know maybe you don't at learn new english we have a course on teaching listening it's called teaching listening made easy and it's applicable for all teaching contexts and for a thank you for listening to this podcast if you go and the the link is in the show notes we have a discount code for you to get 30 percent off of that course and if you use the code ttt listening ttt for a teacher talking time of course so ttt listening to get 30 percent off of that course and that's at courses.learnyourenglish.net but we'll put that link in the show notes as well all right, that's, that's about it. I think we're, we're done for today. And that's it. Let's stop talking and uh, start listening some more. So thanks, Leo. Thank you.
You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.